And now it's time for the Wild Side News with your host, Sydney Wildsmith. Have you ever thought your dog was laughing? Does your goldfish recognize you? When a red-tailed hawk is soaring on an updraft of air, does it enjoy the sensation? Do animals have feelings and emotions? The answer generally depends on who you're talking to. And today we talk to one of the world's leading researchers into the topic of animal emotions and awareness, Dr. Mark Beckhoff, in this special edition of the Wild Side News. Coming up. back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. The question of whether animals can actually carry out simple problem solving, that they have the capacity to use simple tools, and that they can respond and even create original solutions to simple problems, has been fairly well resolved by science. It's taken 50 years for laboratory research to get to this point, research that often subjected the test animals to years of pushing colored buttons on touch screens or moving a lever with a nose, or running through mazes, or trying to knock bananas down with a stick. The realms of pure science, looking for neural pathways to understanding, not only the primitive animal brain, or the primate's comparative intelligence, say, with a dog, and how all of this would hopefully someday lead to a better understanding of our own mind, has been a long, meticulous path. Another branch of science, ethology, or the study of animal behavior, has taken a different pathway relying as much as possible on observing animals in their natural state to determine the capabilities of animals when given the chance to express their full matrix of potentials for survival, communication, social dynamics, and mates. And the two approaches have often come into conflict, as a longer ethologist like Jane Goodall spent in close observation of animal communities, the more they concluded that animals were complex, intelligent, feeling creatures. This quest has led to even more challenging questions, and today we go in-depth as we explore the emotional lives of animals with one of the world's leading researchers in this field, Dr. Mark Beckhoff. This is, to me, one of the most important questions facing humankind today, and you'll find out why as we devote the entire show to exploring the joy, sorrow, jealousy, fear, rituals, mourning, and passion of our animal friends. I, for some reason, was came into this life with a total fascination about animals and as some sort of a quest and an appreciation to understand what in the world they are, how they function, how they operate, what makes them go, and it's been a lifelong quest. I share this passion with uh, someone who I'm getting to know very well, uh, who is one of my favorite people to talk to for a whole lot of reasons. And this is Dr. Mark Beckhoff, who has written a new book called The Emotional Lives of Animals, and we're going to have a great discussion about that topic right now. Dr. Beckhoff, welcome to the Wild Side News. Wow, I'm glad to be here again, Sydney. I love your show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, first of all, you've written a, a new book, and we're going to be uh, kind of focusing on that, The Emotional Lives of Animals. And this is what I'm going to say uh, about the book. 
book, and this is not pandering. This is a book that virtually everybody should read for a number of reasons. One is that it's a fascinating, fast read, easy read. It's not heavy and deep into science and the scientific method. It is, and we'll talk about why that is, too. Uh, but as well, it, it carries a message that is so close to me, which is the fact that animals, yes, indeed, do have very rich, full uh, full spectrum of emotional expression. First of all, give us a little background about what brought you to this. You, like I, have shared some sort of innate passion about understanding animals. Right. Well, to give an autobiography, my parents tell me that when I was about three or four years old, I was always asking them what other animals felt and what other animals thought. And I wrote a book in 2002 called Minding Animals, and actually that phrase came from the long conversations that I had uh, with my parents. You know, my mother was actually afraid of dogs, having been bitten when she was young. She just developed a long-term fear. My father loved dogs. My grandparents had a dog. But at the time, I was only raised with a goldfish. And I would run around saying, what do you think he's feeling? What do you think he's thinking? And, of course, people would look at me like I was nuts. But my folks said that, you know, they could never, they just never really put anything directly straight, you know, straight to me uh, that would result in that. So... The big picture is I think I was raised in a house with a lot of love and compassion, um, a lot of a lot of peace, you know, a lot of, you know, if you will, anti-war sort of um, sentiments, uh, conscientious objector type sentiments. Mm-hmm. So that's the best answer I can come up with, Sydney. that it's just been one of those uh, situations where I just always have empathized. And I think in my book I also write about mirror neurons, which we'll get to sometime. Yes. So when I tell people that I can feel another person's or another animal's pain, I actually really, um, I really mean that, as fluffy as it sounds. For people who may not know, I do have a degree in biology, and I will say this. If I had gone on to graduate school, which for some reason I didn't, I went to the University of Minnesota, which has a great biology department, but had I done so, I would have majored in ethology, the study of animal behavior, which is, which is your forte. And I'm also going to say this, that what we're going to talk about today, from my perspective, is the most important topic on earth. You can talk about war, we can talk about poverty, we can talk about globalization, we can talk about global warming, etc., etc., the death of the animals, etc., but I think perhaps the secret to all of this has to do with the concept that we that we simply must come to understand that the animals that surround us, the beings, these creatures, are trying to reach. My my take on this, Mark, is that our lives are shallower because they're kind of waiting for us to communicate with them. They're communicating with us all the time, but for reasons that come a lot from science. Unfortunately, we have a wall. We've created a wall. Now, you certainly do talk about that in your book, which, of course, everyone knows is this concept of anthropomorphizing. Let's get into that a little bit, because as just with you, I share the fact that scientists are the ones who are building this wall, and they, it's been a very, very difficult arena to, to penetrate the concept of anthropomorphizing. How are, are, is it that you as a scientist... What kind of wars have you had to fight to try to get people to realize that animals do have emotions? You know, there's been a number of uh, walls. The first is very simple, and that just comes back to when I'm studying animals, uh, naming them, you know, instead of numbering them. You know, so the first thing would be that I watch animals and I name them because they're subjects of a life. 
they're not objects, if you will. So, you know, for giving them a name. In my book and elsewhere, I've written about a cat who I named Speedo, who was a real rapid learner. It came time to sacrifice him or kill him, and he looked at me um, in the eyes. He locked eyes with me and basically said to me, you can't do this. You know, you just cannot do this. It is wrong for you to do this. And um, so, you know, it was partially because I had named him and he took on a personality. So, you know, that's one resistance that comes. And, of course, if you... Jane Goodall, of course, was notorious for having come out of the field um, to complete her Ph.D. at Cambridge University. And she was had named all the animals, and they all had personalities, and the people at Cambridge said, you know, you can't do that. That's unscientific. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, of course, is just the concept of anthropomorphism, you know, attributing human characteristics to um, animals. And my take on that, of course, is, number one, we have to be anthropomorphic, and we have to do it um, from the animal's point of view, but we have to use words with, with, with which we're familiar in the language we know. So... Part of that resistance to that is um, some people say, well, we should just describe the behavior or we should describe the firing of muscles or the uh, firing of neurons or provide data on body temperature or something like that or brain waves, EEGs. But, of course, that doesn't give you any context. So what I favor is uh, the principle called biocentric anthropomorphism, which means being anthropomorphic and really taking the time to learn you know, about the animal. The other thing, of course, is that some of the critics will, you know, come to me when I say, hey, look, look at that elephant in the zoo. She's unhappy. And they'll go, oh, you're just being anthropomorphic. She's very happy. And I, when I first heard that, I knew there was something wrong. But, you know, frankly, sometimes it doesn't uh, register. But, of course, what's wrong is why is it anthropomorphic to say that an elephant is unhappy, but it's not anthropomorphic to say that an elephant is happy? Of course, the obvious answer is you can't prove it scientifically, and that's part of the challenge is the fact that, and this is where I have a, a difficult time with the scientists, is that if they can't prove it, they say it doesn't exist. Uh, I'm always intrigued by the fact that scientists announce discoveries such as that animals actually can think in perhaps some complex uh, fashion or that they perhaps may be able to use tools. And and part of the, the story that you certainly talk about is the fact that there's such a difference between scientists as they're talking to scientists and trying to be a scientist. And we love scientists. And we know plenty of great scientists, uh, certainly. But then when you talk to them about what's happening with their animals at home, it's as if they live in two different worlds and they can't put the two together. That is part of the challenge, that there is this disconnect between their human experience and then how they describe the same animal and their behaviors when they're talking to scientists. In my book, I have a story of a friend of mine named Bill. It's not his real name. <laughs> And his dog, Reno, and the story goes that um, right before I gave a talk, I knew Bill and I had met Reno previously. Bill came up to me and told me how smart Reno was and how emotional he was and how he loved to play and how he got really upset when Bill gave attention to his daughter and when Bill left him at home for a real long time, he got angry and, um, you know, separated, uh, uh, suffered from separation anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. So I gave my talk, and I freely said, of course we know that dogs and chimpanzees have, say elephants, have emotions. And recently we've discovered that mice show empathy. 
So I gave the talk, and afterwards, Bill raised his hand and said, Oh, Mark, you're just being anthropomorphic, et cetera, et cetera. And I just looked at him, and I said, Bill, do you want to tell the audience about what you told me about your dog, Reno? And he said, Oh, you know what I mean. And I went, No, 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 I don't know what you mean. So there was an example of this um, kind of angst and schizophrenia that a lot of researchers have, that the dog at home is different from the dog in the lab. The dog at home has a personality. You can name the dog. Uh, they, they experience a wide range of emotions, but the dog in the laboratory is some kind of objectified object, a creature with, who's numbered, who doesn't have feelings. So the good news is this uh, war against anthropomorphizing by scientists is, is diminishing significantly. Oh, hugely. And it's really is... hard to find anybody who really comes out and says, you never can do this, it is yeah. wrong. Because, yeah. of course, the alternatives they offer, Sydney, just don't work. Right. Yeah, no, of course, it's really getting, and also because people are becoming more careful using it. And there's also been a new finding um, in humans using um, functional magnetic resonance imaging that shows that the, when we anthropomorphize, the emotional part of the brain lights up. And so in my book, I argue that the reason we anthropomorphize is because we feel. We all, you know, we also anthropomorphize um, nature, angry thunderstorms, for example. Mm-hmm. So it's just a human tendency. I recently wrote a paper with a friend of mine, and what we concluded is that being anthropomorphic is doing what comes naturally. There's a lot of evidence that our ancestors started being anthropomorphic when they hunted, and they had to learn how to uh, predict and understand the behavior of prey animals. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, of course it does. So, you know, to be honest with you, Combined with the what I call that anthropomorphic doublespeak, you can say an elephant's happy, but you can't say she's unhappy. And combined with the lack of any kind of alternative, I don't pay any attention anymore to the critics. It's a waste of time. I agree with you. It's uh, this is this is another thing that you covered in your book, which I I didn't know. Uh, I haven't had a chance to read Darwin I, uh, for whatever reason it is. I just I guess I don't have the time. But you uh, thank you for sharing the fact that he actually was one of the people who really began to classify as he was classifying everything. Uh, the emotional content of animals. He had six emotions, and as I men- mentioned these, I just want each one of you to think about these terms, and then as well as they apply to the animals that you know. Anger, happiness, sadness, disgust, fear, and surprise. I- anyone who, who has ha- had any experience with animals can say, yes, I've seen my animal angry. I certainly have seen my animal happy, sadness, disgusted with things, fearful, and surprise. But then as well, it, it goes on, and, and, and new terms have been added, the concepts of jealousy, right. contempt, shame, embarrassment. This really adds on to those uh, other concepts. And then as well, sympathy, uh, guilt, pride, envy, uh, uh, admiration, uh, and a- indignation. I believe that, to a large extent, all of these I've seen in some form or another in animals. And uh, why don't we start to look at some of these? Now, you have had, had the opportunity to really study these different emotional expressions, and you've particularly focused on the area of play, which I find as well fascinating. Let's start to look at some of this topic from the perspective of your perspective as a scientist and how you've gone about looking into the emotional lives of animals. Right. The topic I've studied the most is animal play behavior. 
which of course is related to animal joy and happiness and pleasure. And so I'm still studying play, still trying to learn about it about 35 years later. Mm. But over the course of the decade, uh, the first thing we did was we filmed animals and saw what they did. Um, it takes a lot of patience and time, and um, watching a video of an hour of dog play could literally take 20 or 30 hours to analyze because they do stuff that requires detailed, detailed analysis. And you're really slowing these down almost on a frame-to-frame basis looking for very uh, micro-behaviors. Right. We do it frame by frame, exactly, not even quarter time. And then what we do is, you know, we see what they do. We see how they incorporate the different moves in play. And then, of course, because play in animals incorporates actions from different contexts, we need to be very careful to honor the fact that these animals are facing a very difficult task. So, for example, a bite could be used in predatory behavior or in uh, dominance, as could be a hip slam. A mounting is usually used in reproductive behavior. But during play, they incorporate all the actions from different contexts. So how do they know they're playing and not fighting or trying to mate or eat one another? So we began that analysis by looking at a new set of sequences. And then we also were concerned with how animals uh, communicate their intention to play. How do I tell you I want to play with you? How do I tell you that I'm sorry I bit you or I bit you very hard, but let's play? It's a very complex behavior play. And right. you go into that in your book in such a, a marvelous way because there's all sorts of rules. There has to be rules. Right, exactly. There have to be rules. And the way that the animals live by the rules, of course, is that they, number one, agree to cooperate. They, number two, use certain signals to say, I'm going to play. Let's play. Don't interpret a bite as, a, say, a, a, an aggressive move. And then they'll use what I call the play bow when they crouch on their forelimbs and put their butts up in the air, they not only use that to solicit play, but they use that right before or right after they've bit an animal very hard. And so what that is saying is, Sydney, I'm going to bite you, but don't take it as, say, a dominance move. Or, Sydney, I'm sorry I bit you. You know, I bite you hard and you look at me, you make eye contact, and you go, what are you doing? That's not play. And I go, yes, it's play. I'm sorry. So play requires a very careful fine-tuning and coordination of the behavior. It requires the ability to forgive and to accept forgiveness and to apologize. Um, It uh, incorporates trust. And so I developed in Chapter 4 of my new book this concept of wild justice in which the animals can play fairly, they can play roughly, but, you know, they need to play fairly so that play doesn't escalate into aggression, for example, And the fact of the matter is, although everyone who goes to a dog park or has watched animals says that play frequently escalates into um, aggression, the fact is it rarely does. That's true. We've collected data on this, and you you tend to remember it because it's so rare. So after decades of looking at what animals do when they play and how they play with one another and maintain the play atmosphere – we now believe that they are moral, that there's a sense of morality, and that they know right from wrong. Now, it's interesting because, uh, as a scientist, we believe that there is this process of natural selection. That somehow, if these if these behaviors exist, they have been selected for, as opposed to if they don't exist, they would be selected out. And I believe that that's there's absolute truth in that. Exactly. If they don't work, they don't stay. Exactly. No, exactly. And so the the next question that would kind of logically flow would be, what 
uh, selective advantage would playing have in terms of adding some sort of selective advantage to an animal species? So let's talk about dogs. How might play actually help these animals in terms of their species survival? Right. That's a great question. Um, it's very difficult to assign one general function, if you will, to play. And so the way I, we look at it, you know, in the field is that play is important in social development, uh, the development of social skills, socialization, social communication skills. It's important in physical development. It provides um, anaerobic and aerobic exercise. It's um, important in what's called the training response, builds um, joints, muscles, and tendons and bones, for example. It's also important in cognitive development, uh, learning concepts. Um, I call it eye-paw coordination. Animals learn to negotiate their environment like we might call it eye-hand coordination. And um, a couple of years ago, some colleagues and I put forth a theory of play that's very ubiquitous, very broad, and it says that play trains animals for unexpected circumstances. And that has really caught on. And the reason it is is because play is so variable. Mm -hmm. And because it uses actions from many different social contexts, mm -hmm. it really does allow the animals to prepare and to behave flexibly and variably in situations that are um, unpredictable. Well, you know, it, it's... it's I'm, I don't know what the term for this is, but now I'm going to, like take the animal behaviors and apply them to our own because that's there's a back and forth. There's anthropomorphizing, but there's perhaps animal, I don't know, you maybe have a term for it, but applying these things to ourselves. Uh, children as well play. Oh, and I, I, think, I think back at when I was playing, and it, as you say, it's extremely experimental. You know, you're trying all sorts of things, and you're trying them out, and you're finding out, you're getting a feedback loop about what's acceptable and what's not. It, it, no, it, exactly. Right, and, and, and the, the people who have, a lot of people, I mean, frankly, a lot of people have been quite interested in this work. A lot of the interest comes from uh, developmental psychologists who are seeing the same thing on the playground. Mm -hmm. Exactly, mm -hmm. uh, with human kids. By the way, the book is rich in filling out all of this information. We have, although we have uh, an hour here, we're only going to hit about 2% of what I'd really like to talk with you about. But um, we have been uh, taught from the from day one the concept of the survival of the fittest, and there's sort of an, a natural interpretation about that, that that means the strongest, the bravest, uh, the healthiest, and as well those that can uh, subdue and even slay any sort of uh, adversaries. But you bring into this another concept of survival of the fittest, and that has to be the survival of the fittest when it comes to cooperation. I think that's such a such a a, a, a brilliant reinterpretation of survival of the fittest. Well, one of the things that we're really interested in in this uh, notion of wild justice is placing cooperation and fairness in the context of the evolution of behavior. Um, the survival of the fittest, the competitive paradigm, still predominates. But it's not um, so that it's the only show in town. So, of course, there's competition among animals, but there's also a lot of cooperation. And anybody who knows evolutionary theory knows that it would be impossible for behavior to persist if it was always aggression, aggression, aggression. At some point, it would just escalate to the point um, where... Uh, it would just be weeded out of the repertoire. Well, kill, so, they'd kill themselves off. 
Yeah, they would. And in other aspects, uh, some people call it runaway selection. Uh, um, an anatomical example of runaway selection might be the huge antlers that just got bigger and bigger on Irish elk until they couldn't carry their heads upright. We need balance for the competitive nature, and we look at cooperation, and we don't view cooperation as being a sideshow. In other words, cooperation in and of itself is important in the evolution of behavior. Without the balance, we wouldn't get anywhere. And actually, among a lot of species, and now um, I present data in my book from studies of different monkeys, um, social carnivores such as wolves, hyenas, their social interactions are predominantly cooperative. But once again, you know, a big fight is really an attention getter, and that's what people tend to remember. So the big picture here is that cooperation is key. There's been strong selection for it in evolution, and that it's not a sideshow to just competition. Well, in our in our own societies, there's a there's this backwards forwards loop that uh, uh, we learn about the animals, but as well in the process of learning about them, we learn about ourselves, which I think is part of the big, huge message here. Look at our own society, for example. I am personally amazed at the degree to which humans cooperate. As I'm driving, I live here in San Diego, and as I'm driving down the freeway, and I see literally endless streams of cars going 70, 80, 85 miles an hour, and somehow we're all in some sort of unspoken cooperation. We're driving together. And then you get that one jerk who's weaving in and out, and all of a sudden we start to get a little angry, don't we? Yes. We, we, don't, we react to those that, don't, that go beyond the rules. Or another example that I like to think about is standing in line. We have, we have an unwritten law. No one has to teach us exactly. We're all standing in line to buy a movie ticket. And then, you know, that jerk that decides that they're going to butt ahead of us, I'm sorry, but my hackles go up. Yes. And so they be, that's unsocial behavior. Yes. And, and, and so likewise, it, it, uh, you know, we, we all, we survive in this, in our societies because we have these instincts to get along, to cooperate, and they work and they, they lead to an ongoing society. And I think exactly the same thing happens within the, within the animal communities as well. So how do animals show their emotions? We find out when your voice of the earth continues here on the Wild Side News. Shadows and footprints Mind in the waters of mystery Deep as the endless sea And older than time Islands in motion Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sydney Wildsmith. What are we discovering about animal emotions? Just how complex are their feelings? And which animals have the capacity to express these emotions? You just may want to know how to tell, how to know, when a great ape stands in awe of his world. It's all coming up 
when your voice of the earth continues here on the Wild Side News. Will this be our faith? And we come to understand what creatures on sea before it's too late. Our exploration of the emotional lives of animals continues with Dr. Mark Beckhoff, world-renowned researcher into the realms of the mind and inner spirit of the animal world. One of the things that your book really wonderfully explores is the diversity of, you're making the case that animals do have and exhibit uh, uh, emotion, and that they can literally share this and express this, and that it's up, up to us to try to figure out how that's expressed. But you know, because I, like you, have spent my entire life trying to figure out what's really going on with the wild creatures, this is a scenario that I liked to use to try to help me understand. We sort of think of ourselves, some would say yes, no, uh, that we have a soul. The soul is something that uh, is an individual thing. The concept of this being, this soul, as a, an etheric body that uh, is, is unique to each one of us, we see the difference in the animals, the dogs and the cats and the horses and the cows, and they, they do have different personalities. Of course. And so if I were to take me, my soul, and put it into, let's say, a dog, there's limited ways in which I can express my soul, <laughs> my beingness. Mm-hmm. For example, I can't vocalize it like a human. I can't mm-hmm. do it, so I'm limited, but I still perhaps have some sort of basic life expression that I'm forced to do uh, through, I don't have hands as a dog. I've got right. paws, so I can't build stuff. But that doesn't mean that I can't express all sorts of things. And then you start to apply this to all sorts of different creatures, and I think it helps for people to perhaps look at any creature, and I mean any creature, and begin to analyze, okay, if I was in their form, what would be my options to express my beingness? Because you like to, uh, as well, share the concept of these animals as beings, and I totally agree with you. Your book is rich and with with examples of these different emotions, and that is the fact that when you're talking about emotions, the challenge of science is the fact that it the scientists can can measure things and graph things, but when you're coming to behaviors, it's very very difficult to prove gratitude or joy, and that this comes mostly from sharing experiences and our field observations and human reactions, and your book is rich with those examples. That's why it was a joy for me to read them, is the way in which you've now gone about in your book to give examples of animals and their sense of grief or Mm -hmm. love, uh, uh, embarrassment. Tell us some of the the examples that really stand out for you. You you say that animals laugh. Okay, give me some examples. Right. Um, There's excellent work on animal laughter, some from work on dogs that shows very clearly that this, what we call this play pant, this um, (laughs) sound is very contagious. Dogs do it when they play, but it's also very soothing. And it turns out that um, if you play that pant or that vocalization, say, through loudspeakers, where dogs are stressed, it tends to soothe and calm them. Isn't that fascinating? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's evidence now that rats love to be tickled, and they laugh. And if you do the uh, sonogram analyses 
of this vocalization by rats. It looks like laughter, and they love to be tickled. They love to laugh when they play. So, so we're getting all this great observation. Uh, there was a recent one of gratitude in a whale. A female humpback whale off of San Francisco had been entangled in a net, a fishing net, and five uh, men went in to rescue her. And after they untangled her, she went around to each of them, nodded her head, and winked. And they all just felt that she was thanking them and expressing gratitude. I remember that story dramatically, and each one of the divers had absolutely no doubt that this animal honored them and thanked them personally by coming to each one of them. It's an amazing story. It is an amazing story. And what I think is just really, really interesting about it, Sydney, is that, number one, uh, some of, when you read some of the direct quotations, one of the guys says, now, you don't really want to be anthropomorphic. Yeah, but yeah. And so, you know, this isn't somebody who studies animal behavior. But what was really fascinating to me was not that he, does, you know, not that he was cautiously saying, we don't want to be anthropomorphic. What was um, interesting was, number one, he knew about anthropomorphism. Number two, though, he was completely snowed over by the fact that this whale had come over to um, thank him. I just thought that that was so cool. And the other side of that, which you cover in your book, too, is the response about that story from someone who is in, involved in the business. We don't have to get into the names. Right. But it's someone whose job it is to take care of uh, sea creatures and their response. Right. The response of the woman who t- is um, <laughs> who is responsible for their well-being said, oh, no, the reason that she was doing what she was doing and wiggling around and was that she had been entangled so long she was just loosening up, you know, yeah. as if, you know, you had been yeah. working out or something yeah. or hadn't been able to work out. And that is just ridiculous. But that see, but that's a good example of that reductionist behaviorist kind of interpretation. Right, right. which, again, I think we're, we're moving way beyond, and it's critical, critical, and there's so much to be gained. What it doesn't take into account, number one, uh, is that in the fall of uh, 2006, so even this, even though this discovery came after the example of the whale, mm-hmm. or after the uh, whale incident happened, we discovered that whales have spindle neurons. And previously, mm-hmm. we thought that only humans and other great apes had spindle cells. Turns out that spindle cells are very important for processing emotions, intuitions, gut reactions. You know, really fast gut re- emotional gut reactions. Mm-hmm. So, although I didn't need those. Uh, data, we now know that whales have spindle cells, and anyone who's been around them will tell you they're emotional. There's no reason why she couldn't express gratitude. And the critic who said, oh, she was just stretching, and that's why she was swimming around the way she did, doesn't um, explain why she nodded her head and winked. Mm -hmm. You know, you and I share an exact same observation, uh, because I've been watching animals from the time, (laughs) from my earliest memories. And I'm actually beginning to write a book about that. But it has to do with the eyes, and I think there is so much information. You, too, share the, the concept that it's, there is something about this eye contact and communication, and that is what, the, what the, the divers talked about was this concept of what was communicated through the eyes. Why don't you uh, share some of your thoughts about the importance of intercommunications among species and the eye? I could say that, you know, eyes are important because they're the window into the animal souls, but that, of course, gets debatable. But there's no doubt if you've studied animals, and if you want to know how they're feeling and what they're thinking, look into their eyes, if you can. Like I told the story of Speedo, the cat who basically was responsible for me leaving a graduate program because 
he locked eyes with me and said, why me? Why are you doing this to me? And it knew, too. I mean, it knew. You know, the, the term that just occurred to me, because, I again, we have to be so careful, <laughs> right. is we can't really say soul, and then this concept of emotion is challenging. But the, the as we talk now, the concept for me is a sense of being. In other words, what is that sense of being? The expression, that sense of being, changes through the eye. Are they feeling well? Are they feeling happiness? Are they feeling fear? And so it's the sense Mm-hmm. of that being is expressed through the eyes. I think I feel more comfortable talking about that, and I think it's a, it's a good way to look at this, too. There's a lot of examples. I, I think that uh, some people who have studied chimpanzees and other great apes have said that if you can dare to look into the eyes mm-hmm. of these animals, you'll see that when they're traumatized or kept in small cages and otherwise abused, the light in their eyes go out. I mean, if you want a good sign of how your dog is feeling, look in the dog's eyes. It's, or, it's, it is universal. Or a cat. It's universal. And that's why it's very difficult sometimes to appreciate the emotional lives of birds or fish because you don't see that much in their eyes. Mm-hmm. I know the, I have a cockatiel. Uh-huh. Uh, this was a bird that uh, actually came to me after the San Diego fires. I was uh-huh. outside, and, and she just adopted me, which I was very honored. But she's now, you know, a best friend, a fully complex creature with a strong will. And see, I'm prepared to talk about this without any any reservation. Sure. But uh, every morning we have our routines, and I have to go over, and uh, it means that I get to pet her in the morning. <laughs> which is our greeting. And so I say hugs and kisses, and then that means, then she knows what that means. Mm-hmm. So she puts her head down, and then I can reach through the cage with my finger, and I can just rub her head. And, and this is what is so fun for me, is the fact that when I do that, she turns her head and she's looking at me, but she can't smile. <laughs> you know, because she has that beak. <laughs> so she can't smile. But I can sense through all of her behaviors, and then she also gives me little hugs and kisses. She touches me with her tongue, which is her way of saying thank you. Right. Um, so, but unfortunately, she can't smile, but I can sense that she is. And uh, we have to be open to really, uh, most people, thank God for the Animal Planet and America's Funniest Home uh, Animal Videos and things, because the complexity the richness of animal expression is finally being able to be presented every single day. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, a point I, tied, I make in the book that, once again, you know, some people have really embraced. I'm really happy. I mean, certainly I've got my critics, but one of the things that they've really embraced was the fact that the lives of these animals, the emotional lives, are public affairs. A lot of people go, oh, well, heck, you can't know about this because animal minds are secret or private and all that. And it's just not so. I mean, certainly they have their secrets, but I don't make you prove your joy or happiness when I interact with you. I just accept it, you know? And so we we just up the standard. We up the ante for non-human animals, and that's just wrong, and it's bad science. We need to be consistent. So I think, you know, when... You look at their eyes, when you look at their posture, when you look at their gait, when you look at their um, body language, when you look at their facial expressions, I mean, my goodness, anything, you can see right away that these are living emotional beings and that it's just absolutely dead wrong to make the argument that, well, we can't really know about them because their emotions are secret. It's just a poor excuse for continuing 
distance ourselves from the animals with whom we share the planet. One of the things I, I love about the emotional lives of animals, your new book, which I'll mention is uh, published by the New World Library, is the fact that you, now you push this out a bit, Mark, you suggest and give examples that animals have a sense of humor or a sense of awe. Now, right. awe is a very important word to me for a whole lot of reasons that I won't cover now, but the story of, of the sense of awe is powerful. Yeah. Uh, the best examples come from some of Jane Goodall's work watching chimpanzees do what which, which she calls these waterfall dances, where they just parade around. It, it's, it, you know, it's proto-religious, as she says. It might be a precursor to um, you know, human religion. But their eyes are wide, their hair is up, they're exciting. It's, you know, it's almost like a revival. And it's amazing uh, to see it. And then when Jane and I were at the Mona Chimpanzee Sanctuary near Girona, Spain last June, it would be June 2006, when we were looking at the animals there, we were told there was a male named Marco who did this during thunderstorms. You know, one of the things that comes to me is animals spend a lot of time, quote, doing nothing. Of mm -hmm. course, they're not doing nothing, but, you know, they're hanging out, they're mm -hmm. resting. And there's no reason to think that when they're resting, they're not taking in the uh, environment in which they're living. There's just no reason to think that they don't experience awe and joy and, and have, you know, I suppose what one might call the aesthetic sense. Will we ever achieve a world that opens up to the gift of the animal spirit? We explore the future of animal emotions when your voice of the earth continues here on the Wild Side News. Shadows and footprints mirror the movements of moon and tide. Magnificent families glide. Perfectly calm Nurturing children Why must we kill them With thoughtless hands They're part of a perfect plan And brother to Welcome back to the Wild Side News. And now, Sidney Wildsmith. The evidence is everywhere that animals are complex beings. And it just may be time to begin to change the language from which to who. When we talk about them, it begins to make a difference. We begin to push the argument and explore a world in which an open communion exists in the fields and forests, terraria, and our household pets. When your voice of the earth continues here on the Wild Side News. So what of a world where we human animals finally open up to the existence of feelings and emotions in the living beings around us. We continue our discussion now with Dr. Mark Beckhoff. There's so many things. You also have some extraordinary stories about some of the examples of animal sorrow and grief, particularly at the death of, of a mate or someone in their, 
in their clan or tribe. What what stories stand out for you there? Because that's powerful. Well, there's so many, but yes. um, of course, elephant grief we know about. Um, elephants just are known for being animals who pay respect to their dead and um, mourn the loss of their friends. But I've got some really nice stuff in there on grief in llamas, grief in otters. Mm. But once again, you know, you'd expect that. You know, we, we expect dogs to show grief, which they do in cats when they lose a friend or when they lose a human, you know, friend, human or otherwise. But you know what's really just um, wonderful is that when I put out a call for stories, my friend mm. Betsy Webb, who lives in Homer, Alaska, sent me the llama story. And Scott Coleman, who um, works down at a uh, feline sanctuary in Texas, sent me uh, one about wolves and one about otters. So once again, if you find joy and you find um, happiness and fear in other animals, you'll also find grief. It's not hidden grief, if you will. You know, it's, it's real grief. We can't possibly do justice to to your book because it's so rich. But some of it, and that, so I encourage people to to read it because I, I it's, it's a joy. But for example, some of it is ritualized. You give any number of examples of animals that have ritualized somehow, or at least that's our interpretation. Again, we, I'm calling it ritualized. But anyways, their response, for example, to death. For example, the fox that was uh, burying its mate. Right, uh, right down the road from me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. I mean, you know. I mean. That's what she was doing. She wasn't just digging dirt over her partner. She was actually orienting herself, kicking uh, dirt, looking at it, and then uh, purposely orienting herself so that she would be covering her friend out of respect. Exactly. And elephants, uh, give some examples of, of ways in which elephants almost uh, very specifically uh, honor a fallen comrade. Oh, yeah. I mean, they'll... They'll nose them. They'll try to pick them up, like forklift them with their tusks. They'll hang out. Uh, they'll do actually a grieving ceremony where ele- that, you know each elephant will touch the other elephant. That's how I start my book with the story about magpies. When we were riding into Boulder one day, we saw five magpies, and then we saw a dead one, obviously hit by a car. And we saw two animals go up and peck it with the beak, and then fly off and bring grass back. They all hung out as if uh, very silent, and then they all flew off. Um, this was like a magpie. This was magpie grief, and I also have uh, great examples of uh, uh, gorilla wakes. Gorillas having wakes for one another. Mm-hmm. Um, I dedicate my book to two animals: Jasper, a uh, moon bear in China, who has been severely abused for his bile by the bile bear bile industry. That story is painful to read. Yeah, it's painful to read. And I also dedicate uh, the book to Pablo. And when Pablo died inside of a prison lab, the other monkeys paid him respect and held a funeral service for him, if you will. Mm-hmm. So once again, you know, like I mentioned before, we now know that mice are empathic beings. There's no reason to think that mice might not feel grief and display some kind of ceremony for fallen mice. You know, we just don't know, Sydney. And one of the exciting things about um, what I'm doing and why I want to share it is every day something new comes in, and the new information never contradicts what we know, what we intuit. It's really cool. Well, I consider myself a scientist, and... This has been the challenge that my my sense of observation as a field biologist and and, a, and an ethologist on a uh, to whatever level I do that tells me without 
without any sort of doubt that these are realities in our world, and it's my mission. I am on a mission because I said I consider this to be the most important uh, thing that we can do right now on planet Earth is to open up our awareness about the the sentience of all of the other creatures out there to whatever degree it's, they have it, okay? Right. But they are aware. There's much more complex. There's a full panoply of different ways in which they are expressing their beingness. And I guess part of my message is the fact that, uh, personally, why I think it's so important is that I feel that we are missing out on such unlimited, almost uh, infinite joy and a sense of wonder that transcends even where we are now because we have that limitation. That if we're able to open up and realize as we take a walk outside that virtually every creature that we see, every single one has some sense of this of this beingness and they're living out their life and that if we can take the time to listen to them as they're trying to share this with us, that if we open to that, we are enriched tremendously it's it's critical i just it's it's my mission exactly and i think one of the important things that we must recognize is that i do it in my book and other people who are writing about animal emotions are showing is that it's not just a bunch of loose anthropomorphism it's not just a bunch of fluff because i live in boulder colorado it's real Science's data, mirror neurons, spindle cells, empathy in mice, a large hippocampus in elephants who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. It's just not a lot. It's just not fluff. And I'm tired of hearing people go, oh, you're being sentimental. Oh, you're being anthropomorphic. No, I'm being scientific. Right. And they don't, like to, they don't like to recognize that because it means if they do, then there's going to be a lot that they can't continue doing to other animals in invasive research and in the food industry and in research and education and entertainment. So yeah, It makes stop. it a lot easier to take out whole forests, doesn't it? It is. I mean, if, we, if no, you think about is. a forest and you think about all the creatures in, in a particular habitat, if you if you take out a forest and you don't have to think about those creatures, it just it just makes it a lot easier. I myself, you make the point that you have become a vegetarian for all the reasons that we're discussing here, and I myself have been a vegetarian an ancient long time ago. I'm not now, and I'll be I'll just be perfectly honest. The reason I I'm not is I I can't think about what I'm really doing. <laughs> uh-huh. I just I just as a human being I have a difficult I I don't know that I can really go there if I think about yeah. these creatures and the fact yeah. that they are. Uh, feeling beings, but here's one of the things that I think is, uh, from a scientific perspective, is really interesting, and that is that okay, we're talking about the fact that these animals have these ways of of showing their emotions, and one scientific approach would be, well, that's how they communicate within their species. But I am prepared to say, and this opens up this 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 uh, uh, topic of of what this is really about and how we can gain, is that these animals as well communicate that. Interspecially, for that they they're communicating within their community, their feelings on an individual basis, and that other animals perceive it, get it, grok it, understand it, sense it, and respond to it, and it it enriches our sense of what's really going on out there in our world, and that's the fact that there's a there's a tremendous passion of life in every community. Of course. It goes on interspecifically between species. One, of course, is we know it goes on between us and other species, including our dogs. But 
there's no doubt that a wolf knows how a dog feels. I mean, you know, I think we may in the beginning have to understand that we need to concentrate on closely related species who have uh, similar communication patterns. Oh, but I guarantee you over time we're going to learn that these animals communicate with one another in very deep and meaningful ways across species. Um, I was just in India a couple of months ago, and a guy told me that he believes that where whales uh, and other cetaceans and elephants come together when elephants go to the water to drink, mm. they communicate using infrasound, that very low sound. I well, mean, that's amazing. It is. I yeah. mean, it's amazing. Yeah, well, I, I, think, I think quite honestly... I'm prepared to say that it's an open system. I, I, I'm, I'm not putting any limits anymore on what I think is being communicated amongst the, the creatures. I'm saying it's an open system. I mean, you take any two animals in a household, whether it's a, a, a gerbil or, and a dog, and you'll find them playing. Exactly. You know, getting along, and, and the dog will be protective of that animal, the dog uh, or a cat. Or a bird, you just name whatever, put whatever matrix you want. Now you got to be a little careful with cats and birds sometimes. Cause they, well, yeah. yes, but you know, in the book I point out that there's a couple of examples where a linus in Africa adopted a baby oryx exactly. on five different occasions. Exactly. A right. predatory snake who eats hamsters has a hamster friend yes. who is allowed to sit on his back while he eats other hamsters. Now, let's talk about that. Now we're getting somewhere because, you see, that is a communication amongst two beings inter, uh, across species, but they're communicating something. Well, uh, you know what? They are, but I don't know what. And, you know, I've asked, been asked this question so many times. I have no idea in the world why that snake likes that hamster but it could be she has a unique smell. I mean, I don't know, and I think when we call them, you know, I call them improbable friends, improbable relationships, you're right, Sydney. Something is happening, and it may be something unique, but what it points out to me is the infinite possibilities. The, the um, hippopotamus who has adopted, a, hundred, a baby hippopotamus who's adopted a 100-year-old tortoise as his best friend, after he was uh, basically isolated from his family during the tsunami and then was stranded. You know, why in the world should, you know, a hippopotamus who, I've seen them in the wild, they're extremely emotional and extremely expressive, adopt um, a tortoise as his best friend. Not Mm -hmm. that the tortoise isn't friendly, but more the tortoise doesn't communicate like, very few facial expressions. You you know what I mean? Well, I think it's an open system. I think it's a, and the two, you know, there's a lot of people I don't like. Okay? Yeah, we don't yeah. get along, you know? And it very often happens because I look in their eye and something is communicated to me and I say, I don't, I don't want to go here, you know? I, right. I don't need to waste my time here. I think it's an open system and the two, any two creatures can learn to communicate. Can, and I think it, obviously the, the fundamental baseline is the fact that they've agreed to get along. Exactly. They, they've agreed that they're not going to hurt each other. Yes. And, they, but you don't, but we don't know how. I would love to see someone systematically study what yes. we call these improbable relationships. I think that's an area of science that needs to be explored wide open. Yeah, it'll blow people's minds. It, it, I mean, I'm afraid, I, when I say I'm afraid, I don't mean I'm afraid, but I bet you some people are afraid. It'll bring things out, and it'll blow their minds in terms of the subtlety of inter-specific yes. communication, yes. and it'll blow their doors off in terms of... Um, how subtle and how ubiquitous 
this friendship is. And that, of course, goes into, you know, what I've written in a number of books, including the one I wrote with Jane Goodall, that there's a great umbrella of compassion. Yes. And that really the world is one. We're all going to be knit together in this umbrella of compassion and love. And I know people say, oh, God, you only say that because you live in Boulder, Colorado. (laughs) And I go, nope. I really believe it, man. I really believe that when we open up our hearts to these animals, we're going to discover friends as the world has never known. You talk about in your book uh, the mirror neurons, which are a unique phenomenon that that you're beginning to discover, uh, which indicate the possibly the portal through which there is this empathy. Give us a, 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 a short entree to that. Right. Well, mirror neurons were discovered about 10 years ago by accident. When a monkey reaches for a pencil, say, what you see is certain neurons fire in his prefrontal cortex. And one night, a graduate student, this was a lab in Italy, one night a graduate student went in And while he was in the lab, they had it set up so that when the neurons fire, there's a sound that comes off from the recorder. So, um, you know, it's a crackling sound, but it's very common. Mm -hmm. He heard the neurons of the monkey fire when he reached for a pencil. So when you... And then, of course, there's been... A ton of study. Uh, there was an essay in Time magazine back in January, which was, you know, basically one of the clearest reviews of what we're learning in neurobiology and behavior. They said that mirror neurons will do for psychology what DNA did for molecular biology. Mm-hmm. And what they were saying was that it's very important to recognize that there are ways now where animals can share emotions and share intention. So the way it might work would be, when I do a play bow, my play bow neurons fire, and I know what I feel. When you do a play bow, my mirror neurons for play bow fire, and I have an idea of what you feel and what you want. There's a there's some sort of communication. Yeah, it's right. There's a sharing of intention. Uh, there's this knowledge of what's in your head. And so, once again... When I say I can feel the pain of a dog, I can. And it's probably mediated by some system like mirror neurons. Mm -hmm. If I say I feel your pain, I feel your joy, I feel your your grief, there's a neural or material basis. So what the discovery of mirror neurons has done across the board is it's really taken into the realm of science the notion of empathy, the sharing of feelings, um, the way you put it that, you know, these mirror neurons are sort of portals of empathy. That's really a great way to put it. That's, of course, what probably underlies the empathy in mice. So, you know, once again, if we have mirror neurons and great apes have mirror neurons and monkeys have mirror neurons, so do dogs, cats, and rats have a functional equivalent, just like the spindle cells that were thought to be only in humans in great apes are now for sure in whales, and I'll bet you if we look for them in other species, we'll find them. I'm going to go way on a limb here, but I'm going to share uh, some of my research as an ethologist fieldwork. And uh, one of the things that you mentioned is the fact that uh, in in the various different emotions, one of them that is not expressed too much in in the scientific realms that are being investigated right now is love, although you do 
you, you do actually talk about that in your book. Let me just share this concept. The, what I work with when I go out, I try to figure out how is it that I can communicate with animals on a more open system? Where can I go? What's that c- common denominator? And I'll just, I'll say that this is what I do. When I head out and I'm, I'm trying to do field research in that, in the wild, and I come across a creature, all that I can say is this is what I've been working with, and that is that I send out a sense of love. Now, everybody, almost everybody, can understand what that really means, but I really push it out there. I really try to communicate a sense to that animal that mm-hmm. I love them, that I care right. about them, that they're my friend, that they're, they're safe, this is a sanctuary, that I'm happy to be with them. I, that's just what I send out. And I'm telling you, I've had miraculous experiences across the board with rabbits that in the wild, and I send that out, and the next thing you know, <laughs> and this, you know, this is emotional for me, they relax, they're grooming, uh, they're just hanging out with me. It's likely that they may use visual cues, but it's probably more likely that you're not stressed, that you're not giving off a stress odor or a stress pheromone. Well, I'm yeah. going to say that it, it may be that my uh, mirror neurons are, are somehow communicating with their mirror neurons in some way that we can't explain, just like we can't really explain how in the world a cell phone works unless you get it. <laughs> you know? right, but, but let me say that um, people now are, are beginning to investigate uh, mirror neurons in modalities other than vision. So what you're right. saying is perfectly on the mark from a scientific point of view. Right. That's that's where I'm experimenting. There's just no reason to think there might not be olfactory or odor mirror neurons. Yes. Yep. Like I said, Sydney, I could not have picked a better area of research 35 years ago. Yeah. And I had no idea where it, was, where it would go, but I honestly believed that if, in fact, it went in the way that I, quote, felt it would go, then we were going to really make some incredible discoveries when we learned the techniques like, you know, functional magnetic resonance imaging and PET scans. Yes. And when people did the behavioral work. Mm-hmm. One thing that people don't understand is it's really hard. I write in my book about collecting elephant poop, for example, yes. or moving yellow snow. I mean, yeah, that's cute, and it sounds cute, but it's hard work, but it's a non-invasive way to learn about the lives of these animals, and that's what I love. The book is rich in these stories. That's a, it's uh, it's a gift, and I'm not just saying that. Uh, no, obviously, I'm, I'm 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 passionate about about this, and we share a very very similar quest. But now let's talk about how this applies. Then, as we as we start to look at some of the hard issues, for example, uh, laboratory animals, uh, captive animals in zoos. Not to not to not to give these people a hard time, but to say we need to be aware. We need to start really exploring what really may be going on with these creatures, because. Because in many cases, they may be experiencing things that we're just not prepared to think about. Yeah. Of course, the subtitle ends with, you know, a leading scientist explores animal joy, sorrow, and empathy and why they matter. The reason emotions matter is because animals have feelings and animals have a perspective on the world. They have preferences like we do. They have likes and dislikes like we do. And it matters because we shouldn't be causing intentional harm to these animals. And the discovery that mice are empathic beings is an interesting one because mice and other rodents and birds are not protected under the Federal Animal Welfare Act. If you read the Federal Animal Welfare Act carefully, you will notice that mice, rats, 
rabbits, for example, rodents, are actually not animals. Yes. It's not a false reading. It is a true reading of the Federal Animal Welfare Act mm. in America that these are not considered to be animals. That's, that's nuts. It's nuts. So then you think about keeping, um, that it's legal to keep a chimpanzee in a basically a 5x5x7 five by five by cage. I mean, my goodness gracious. Yeah. You know, so, so the reason they matter and the implications are huge. And then, of course, you know, we get all upset about animals in rodeos and circuses and in education and research. But if you want to make a difference in this world, you got to pay attention to what's happening to animals in uh, factory farming and mass, mass murder. I call them weapon, weapons of mass destruction slaughterhouses. About at least 50,000 animals a minute are slaughtered. And somebody told me my math might actually have been wrong, but regardless, it's an incalculable number of animals slaughtered per per um, minute and per hour. As you say in the book, this is not going to change suddenly. It's, no. a, it, it, it's impossible. We do have to be open to the fact that we may be doing things consciously that we're not consciously aware of, of the effects, and it's important for us to do that. I believe that once we begin to embrace this concept about, uh, really, really embrace, and children and their families and people around the world, as many people do, understand that, that these creatures, any of those creatures in those laboratories, you take them out of that laboratory and you decide that it's your pet, and all of those emotions are suddenly available. And that's the hard part because, quite honestly, every single one of those creatures has the capacity to have all of those feelings and emotions. I don't know where we're going to go with that, yep. but it's, it's a challenge. Right, and that's, that's just a great way to put it. Why do they become available in situations where, you know, when we're not in the lab? Yes. No, no it's, it's really important. And, you know, more and more people are focusing on these questions because, number one, no one wants to do intentional harm, or very few people do, and we don't need to deal with them now. However, most people want to add compassion and love to the world. But, you know, what we missed is the huge reason, if you will, even, quote, putting ethics aside, which, of course, we can't, is better data are collected when we are working with less stressed animals. And scientists now across the world are concerned that so much information has been collected on animals who are stressed. And so if there's no reason other than to increase the better, uh, increase the reliability of scientific data, then we shouldn't stress or cause intentional harm or, you know, unnecessary pain. And as well, the scientific approaches to uh, this research are, are becoming more elegant and less invasive, less destructive. Uh, Absolutely. Te techniques are, are emerging, and those, again, are choices. Absolutely. You know what it is? What it really comes down to are the choices we make, and we need to be responsible for the choices. Simple. Individual responsibility. Mm -hmm. That's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. Either either own your responsibility. You know, most people don't hesitate to take credit for something, so they also need to take responsibility uh, when they do things that could harm other animals or the environment. Well, Mark Beckoff, author, a researcher, ethologist, fellow earth traveler here who was on a mission to try to bring this awareness of the animal creatures and their the richness as beings, also the author of The Emotional Lives of Animals. Mark, for people who want to learn more about this, and uh, where would you suggest that they, uh, they head? Well, of course I could say read my book, 
Well, that's a that's a given. I'll, I'll endorse that. In all honesty, um, where they can head is, you know, if you go to the web and you just punch in animal emotions, you'll get a lot of hits. But I think where they could really head would be, if you will, I like where they could head, is they should head into their hearts. They should look at what we know and accept the fact fully that we know enough right now that we have to call for a major, major change in the way we treat non-human animals across the board. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the truth of the matter is the fact that humans actually get it. Most humans do because I, I think you give the statistic that well over 50% of the households in America have pets. Of course, there's no excuse. Anyone who lives with a dog or a cat or even a bird knows all this. Yeah. No, really, Sydney. I mean, you, you hit it on the head so many times and you just hit it on the head again. These people know exactly what they're doing and what these animals are feeling. And that's the basis where we have to look for our science, is what actually the, the field research, which happens in every home across America, is telling us, and as all farms and other places where, where animals share their space with humans. Exactly. Always good to talk with you, Mark, uh, Dr. Mark Beckhoff. Uh, if people want to uh, find out more about your research... Well, probably just go to my homepage, which is probably the first hit under Google. I don't remember it. Jane Goodall and I founded an organization called Ethologists for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And that's a place where I suggest people go because scientists, other researchers, non-researchers, students, veterinarians, just interested people have posted stuff there, and it's available on the archive. And that's where you can find an incredible amount of information about animal emotions, animal cognition, and, um, the hum- and humane research. Well, Dr. Mark Beckhoff, we're going to be working together for years ahead here. Well, thank you. Uh, I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you, Sydney. I look forward to chatting with you again. Between now and the next show, take the time to listen. You just may open doors of perception that will amaze you, teach you, and bring you a lifetime of a deepening sense of truth. This is Sydney Wildsmith saying adios. Until we meet next Thursday or any time on the archives when the voices of the earth call out around the world here on the Wild Side News. Stay.